God is, God is really moving in our worship. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, some really powerful stuff. Okay, first, pop quiz. Can you tell me, other than the fact that this is Linda Grant, who or what is she referring to? So it was a happening. To use a word from the time. It was the event itself. It was being there. I didn't understand why you had to scream. I didn't have an impulse to scream. But it was what you did. It was mandatory. There was this cult-like element to it. It makes you feel like part of something larger. Any ideas? Yep. Very good, but John was in there straight away. It's Beatlemania, although you could, you could apply it to Justin Bieber, so, so I've heard, or One Direction. This, of course, is Beatlemania. Uh, I remember it well. I was, I was in there being held back. Um, no, but we've all seen footage, haven't we, of um, those gr- um, black and white pictures of um, a band performing, and you can't hear a single thing because of the screams of, of the women uh, or the girls, or, and some of the men, I think, were there as well. Um, and every time they had to go from a car to a venue, they'd have to run as fast as they could to avoid getting mobbed. Um, that was Beatlemania. Um, why am I talking about Beatlemania? Well, Palm Sunday is very similar to that kind of situation that Jesus met when he uh, entered Jerusalem. Um, and today we're talking about um, Jesus' triumphal entry. And so there was this amazing crowd, just like Beatlemania. You think about what the Middle Eastern kind of culture is like, very expressive, very emotional, very outspoken, um, just like this kind of situation. Keep that Keep the Beatlemania um, moment in your mind when I'm talking about um, Jesus' triumphal entry. So there's these crowds are building, there's all this expectation, there's jubilation, there's celebration um, of what Jesus is, what they think Jesus is going to come and do. But what we find out uh, as we read on in the gospel is that this expectation that they have for Jesus, this triumph that they think uh, is going to come for them, isn't met in the same way that they thought it was going to be met. Now, Jesus has a very different idea of what triumph means in this situation, but the crowds have a different idea. Um, And what we see is, because Jesus doesn't meet these expectations, the enthusiasm falls away, um, and we see that these people end up behaving more like fans of Jesus, just casual fans of Jesus, rather than real followers of Jesus. Um, And all throughout Jesus' teaching, um, we see so many times where he is challenging us Are you a fan of me? Are you just a casual fan of me? Do you just like some of the things I do, or are you my disciple? And are you going to submit to everything that I have for you? Um, A fan and a disciple are two very different things. So a fan wants their hero to meet their expectations, whereas a disciple of Jesus wants him to beat their expectations or to change their expectations. A fan expects to be entertained. A disciple expects to be completely changed. A fan expects to be part of a moment or a happening, uh, as, we, as we read about this Beatlemania moment, whereas a disciple expects to be part of an eternal kingdom. A fan expects to consume something, whereas a disciple expects to give. A fan pushes their way to the front of the crowd, whereas a disciple is servant of all. Um, so if you turn to John 12, 12, we pick up where we are in our series looking at John. Uh, The text will be behind me if you don't have your Bible. 
Um, and I'll just pray before we start. Heavenly Father, um, we all come to you with all kinds of expectations for what our life is going to be like and what our relationship with you is going to be like. And some of those are off and some of those are right. Um, and Lord God, we want to humbly come to you today, Lord God, to read your word, to find out um, what we can expect of you, Lord. Come and, and show us how great you are, Lord Jesus, how much you love us, um, and teach us through your word today. Amen. Okay, so we pick up the story. Um, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, it has been his most public uh, miracle yet, uh, and the people in Bethany, where Lazarus is from, they decide to have a feast to celebrate the fact that Lazarus is alive again. Um, And the next day, reading from the text, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they were talking about it and they were coming with him. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. So Jesus is creating a crowd. This is all um, deliberate. This is Jesus creating the hype. Um, This is, as I said, this is raising Lazarus from the dead is probably his most public and high-profile miracle yet. Um, Jesus, uh, Lazarus was a popular guy. We see from all the other accounts is that there was a lot of public emotion and affection towards Lazarus. There were people crying. There was all kinds of um, emotions going around. And Jesus grew a grew a crowd when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He also grew a crowd when, at this feast when they celebrated and word was spreading about what Jesus was doing. So um, Jesus' fandom was growing at this stage. And Bethany, um, where Lazarus was from, this was, just, this was less than two miles away from Jerusalem. So word spread to Jerusalem. Obviously, obviously it did. Someone had been dead for four days and Jesus had raised him. Um, who is this guy? So what we see in this situation is people from Bethany are joining Jesus as he comes to Jerusalem, and that's converging with another crowd that's in Jerusalem who have heard about what Jesus has done. So there's this massive crowd. And this is also during Passover, so there's much more Jews in Jerusalem than there would usually be. Now, we can't be under any illusion that this is all just coincidental and accidental and this stuff is happening to Jesus. He is setting this up. This is all part of Jesus' plan. He needs to build a crowd in order that the religious leaders of the time would be, get more and more agitated, get more and more envious, get more and more upset with Jesus, which might lead to his arrest, it would lead to his trial, and it would lead to his crucifixion. This is all part of Jesus' plan. So we know that there could be... T- possibly tens of thousands in this crowd, maybe even hundreds of thousands. Picture what it's like when um, a football team wins a cup and then the next day um, they go and parade it through the town and you see people hanging off of lampposts, standing on phone boxes, clambering to get a view of of all the football players. It's that kind of situation. Um, It could even be hundreds of thousands. No one really knows. John MacArthur describes the situation 
He says, this is a massive crowd, a crushing crowd, a crowd overrunning everything. And they have these palm branches, which are symbols of strength and beauty. Strength because they flourish in a desert. So that's, they're saying, this is Israel. Israel is going to be is going, to, is going to be reclaimed by Jesus. We're waving these palm branches at you because we know that this is about Israel coming back. Beauty, because they are evergreen. They become symbols of joy. They become symbols of enduring salvation. We have to look at what they're saying as well. One of the key things they say here is Hosanna. Um, in this context, that literally means save us now. It's the kind of save us that you might say if, you're, if you find yourself dangling off a cliff edge. You'd be saying, somebody, somebody, please help me. You'd be calling out, please help me. It's that kind of save us now. When we use Hosanna, when we sing it, we, we sing to the one who we know has saved us. But these people in this context, they were saying, save us now, because they're expecting Jesus, they're expecting the Messiah to come and be a military king, someone who would come and bring um, force to the Roman Empire to free Israel from, from military rule from the Romans. They expected someone like David to reign and rule over them. Um, and what they're doing now is they're projecting their expectations onto him. And a crowd is building. You've got crowd mentality. You've got all this excitement, all this enthusiasm. Again, John MacArthur says they are hailing the conquering hero. That's what they're doing. Their redeemer has arrived. Deliverance from Roman domination is imminent. They require a mighty deliverer. This is a mighty deliverer because he raised Lazarus from the dead. So you get this a typical double meaning that you, you see in a lot of John's writings where they're shouting Hosanna and they're saying, um, save us now. Uh, and Jesus is going to save them, but not in the way that they expect to be um, saved themselves. They're calling him a king. He is their king, but not in the way that they expect him to be their king. So you've got this double meaning at play. Um, and so Jesus is coming. This is his triumphal moment. He know, we know, because we look back on the situation, that his triumph is going to the cross uh, and, and his resurrection. But their idea of triumph is very different. Um, so there's all this kind of expectation. There's, these people are expecting some kind of freedom from oppression. They're expecting Israel to be restored. Um, they're expecting a military king. The, the religious leaders, on the other hand, they're getting more and more agitated. They just want him to go away. They want him to lose influence. In fact, we even saw, uh, if you read earlier in John, that the chief priests um, were planning to kill Lazarus because of the, the, the size of the crowd that was building because of what had happened to him. Um, but Jesus is actively encouraging this hysteria. He's acti actively um, making it happen. We see normally Jesus avoids large crowds. He avoids moments where people say who he is. He normally tries to dampen that, but on this occasion, he's building it up because he knows what is coming. Um, and now let's just carry on in the narrative to John 19. We need to turn a couple of pages. So John 19, 13, Jesus has been arrested and he's now on trial. And we read, um, so Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. That's what they've been calling him. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, 
We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Now that's in the space of days, Jesus has gone from hero, this triumphal entry, to zero, to wanting them wanting him to be crucified. Now you could question, is this the same crowd? Maybe there might be a mixture. Um, you could say, well, it's the religious leaders, isn't it, who are, who are bringing this charge, who are, who are the ones shouting out for him to be crucified. But what you don't see is anyone, there's no mention of anyone in the crowd um, calling for Jesus to be released. Um, so the crowd mentality has changed. Public opinion has completely swung. Um, Jesus has not turned out to be the person or the hero and the saviour they expected him to be. And we can see why. Because the days after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he drives the vendors out of the temple. Remember, he um, whipped them out. He warns people about the religious leaders of the time. He prophesies about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, so obviously very different to what they're expecting. Um, He tells them a parable about the sheep and the goats, warning people about what superficial religion looks like, religion that has no action. He tells the chief priests and elders that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into heaven before them. And he goes on this um, tirade against the Pharisees and other religious leaders, calling them hypocrites. And he does this in front of multitudes of people. So um, Jesus comes. They're expecting him to come and endorse Israel. But instead, he comes to challenge it. And he turns the religious order on its head. He has not become the saviour that they wanted. They expected him to come and, and take Israel further, but instead he came to criticise the Jewish leaders. He came to criticise the Jewish establishment. He did not have a high opinion of what was going on there. Um, he knows that popular opinion needs to change, um, so he is setting this up. So popular opinion has changed from this is our king to questioning, is this our king? Is this really our king? All in the space of five or six days. You've got Palm Sunday, and then we're at Jesus' trial a few days later. We can accuse this crowd of being fickle, but um, if we look at our own lives and I look at my heart, I know that I can be like this crowd from time to time. I can impose my own expectations onto Jesus. One minute I can be exalting him, happy at church on a Sunday, The very next day or on the way home from church, I can be getting frustrated with things that are happening in my life that I feel like Jesus hasn't fixed yet, all because it's my timing. Um, Philip Yancey uh, is a well-known Christian author. Um, And when he was researching one of his books, um, he interviewed a number of Christians and he was talking to them about um, what their expectations were and where they met, um, what it was like to live a Christian life. And on one occasion, he interviewed a Christian radio host who was quite well known, Um, apparently he was a big name, Um, and this is what the radio host said after his life was shaken up through an illness which nearly killed him. He says, I have no trouble believing God is good. My question is more, what good is he? I heard a while back that Billy Graham's daughter was undergoing marriage problems, so the Grahams and the in-laws all flew to Europe to meet with them and pray for the couple. They ended up getting divorced anyway. If Billy Graham's prayers don't get answered, what's the use of my praying? I look at my life, the health problems, my own daughter's struggles, and my marriage. I cry out to God for help, and it's hard to know just how he answers. Really, what can we count on God for? It's really honest. Um, And I think probably 
we can all resonate with, with some of what he's saying, some of the questions that we encounter um, when we become Christians. I remember after I became a Christian, a few weeks after, uh, a good friend of mine asked me, so now that you've become a Christian, now you've got God, have things started going well for you in your life? Have things started going in your favor? And I had no idea how to answer it at the time. I was a very new Christian. I hadn't been brought up in Christianity, so I didn't know the culture. Um, and, but that question stayed with me. Should I have expected things to start going my way from now on? And I think, if I'm honest, in the years following, a big part of me did, and probably a big part of me still does. So we face a very real temptation um, to expect Jesus to come and fulfill all of our desires, all of our plans, all of our dreams. But the problem is, Jesus can sometimes have a very different priority to us. Jesus sometimes has a very different view of what a triumph looks like in our lives. So we can, we can be in danger of thinking things like, if only my family would listen to me and respect me um, when I ask them to. But Jesus might look at that situation and look into your situation and think, actually, the greater triumph for you would be to learn to be more patient with your family. We might look at our work situations and think, if only my colleagues would, would respect me and care more about my ideas and my input, and I've got so much to give. But Jesus might look in that situation and say, a greater triumph in your life might be to develop in humility. Or we might think having a better paid job or better financial security, that would look, that, if that would represent a triumph in my life, if I could just have better financial security, that would be a triumph. But Jesus might see us learning to be more content in every situation as being a greater triumph, as being his priority for our lives. I often think about um, the way that John the Baptist's life turned out. So Jesus... Uh, labeled John the Baptist the greatest man that ever lived. Um, greater than David, greater than Moses, greater than Samuel. He said John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. And John the Baptist fulfilled God's calling on his life. He was obedient to God in every single way. But his obedience led to his arrest and his eventual beheading. But this is where the power of the gospel comes in. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that when you become a Christian, every single thing in your life is going to go smoothly, everything is going to be easy, and everything is going to be convenient. The good news of the gospel is that you get Jesus, and that he's enough, no matter what kind of circumstance you go through, no matter what valley you go through, Jesus is most, more beautiful than anything you can ever experience. The good news of the gospel is that you get Jesus. He is enough. And what we see um, when we mature in Christ is that hardship and difficulties and pressure are God's grace to us. It doesn't sound intuitive at the time, um, but we look at all the difficult things in our life, a difficult and wayward child, a parent with dementia, a boss who's a bully, an aggressive neighbor, a relapse of serious illness. These can, on the surface, can seem like um, moments of failure in our lives. Um, it can feel like God isn't working in our lives because we're experiencing all this stuff. But these are actually instruments of God's grace. This is how... He changes us. 
And he uses these moments to take our trust off our circumstances and put our trust in Jesus to build holiness within us. He is using these moments in our lives to refine us, and this is a necessary work. Because what we do, human nature, is that we build our lives, a foundation of our lives on these pillars, um, and we rest all of our hope on these pillars. So one pillar could be comfort and convenience. Another pillar could be health. Another pillar could be uh, family. Another pillar could be financial security. It's different for every people. It could be job security, one pillar you put up. Another pillar could be holidays. Another pillar could be television and entertainment. Another pillar could be technology. Another pillar could be even something like chocolate that we, put our, we rest the foundation of our lives on and we say to ourselves, we might, not, we might not verbalize it, we might not even think this coherently, but what we actually say to ourselves is that as long as these things are present in my life, I'm okay. But because God loves us, he is in the business of gently removing these pillars from our lives because he knows that these things will ultimately disappoint us. If we put too much of our trust in comfort, like I know that I do, if we put too much of our trust in good health, too much of our trust in financial security, when those things are taken away from us, we can, we can lose all hope. But what, what God wants to do is take those things away and put himself underneath those things so that we rest our lives on Jesus. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in a really powerful quote. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Um, a very recent example of, of this kind of thing in my life, so I spent 27 years without having to look after an infant. No genuine, proper responsibilities. Um, all of a sudden, this infant gets thrust into my life and I have all these responsibilities and immediately I start noticing selfishness in my heart because these responsibilities clash with my comfort. These responsibilities clash with my ability to um, escape from these things. So a, a good example might be we've spent a long day with Rosa, we finally get her down to bed, we tidy the kitchen, um, we, we get some dinner ready, we open a bottle of wine, put a film on, great, that's it. We've, this is my time now, I can relax, I can escape from all of it. 20 minutes later, the monitor goes, uh, she doesn't go back down to bed. In that moment, I am tempted to get really frustrated um, because I have put my happiness in escaping from hardship. Um, whereas God is using children, um, bringing children up, having babies, he uses those moments to bring joy through them. Um, and so he reveals our selfishness, he reveals our wrong motives, he reveals our wrong priorities through those moments. But in the moment and the time, I get all frustrated because I don't recognize where this is in my life and what God is using it for. In John 17, um, Jesus prays what is known as his priestly prayer. 
Um, So he prays this over his disciples. And at one moment, he says, this is eternal life, that they know God. And that that has just stayed with me. This is eternal life, that they know God. Those are Jesus's words. That's his interpretation of what eternal life is. What can we deduce from this? Well, that means that eternal life is not primarily a place. Eternal life is not primarily a feeling. It's not primarily the absence of sin, the absence of fear. Although those things will be there, it's not primarily what eternal life is all about. It's about knowing God. Um, And that's what all of this is about. That's why we meet on a Sunday morning. That's why we have times of praise. That's why we have meetings in the night to have praise. That's why we meet together as a life group. That's why we have coffees and teas. It's all about knowing God. It's all about helping each other and helping people to see that eternal life is knowing God. It's not just a change in your circumstances. It's primarily knowing God. And that is a deep truth. um, And we should want that to penetrate our hearts. Um, A few years ago, I was um, part of a life group where we were um, going through the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and it fell to me, my week was to lead a talk on Habakkuk. Um, Never read it before, didn't know it existed, but what I came to see is there was this profound message of hope and adversity. It's three chapters long, you can read it in half an hour. I, I encourage you to go home and read it today, but I'll give you a quick overview. Habakkuk is the author. Um, and he is writing, he is speaking to God and he is complaining about the state of Judah. Uh, he is telling God about injustice. He's telling that the people of Judah are complacent. They're growing spiritually fat. And God says, I know. I've seen it um, and I've got a plan. I'm sending in the Babylonians who are a vicious people and they will bring terror and they will come and, and lay uh, Judah to the ground. Habakkuk obviously and understandably says, what? I'm talking to you about the fact that these people, um, my people, are involved in injustice and they're growing complacent. And you're telling me that you're going to bring in these other people um, and Judah is going to be laid to waste? And God says, it's the righteous that shall live by faith. And he goes on to say that he is creating a remnant of people who will live by faith. And he's going to deal with their complacency by bringing in hardship. And the one verse that just has just stayed with me ever since is in Habakkuk 1.5. God says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. That can massively minister to us on a personal level. You imagine um, that's what Jesus is thinking about when he's going to the crucifixion. Imagine that's the message he'd want to give to the disciples when they see that he has died and they've lost all hope in this man. Jesus is about to do something amazing that we wouldn't even believe if we were told. Habakkuk praises God. The end of the book is just is, is Habakkuk writes a song and it's an amazing praise to God. That's like a, a moment Uh, in Israel's history, but it can also be applied to us. Um, God does the same thing to us when he recognizes complacency, when he recognizes laziness or um, lukewarmness in our hearts. God allows us to go through moments of adversity so that in order that we might become to realize our daily need for Jesus and that that would be the thing that motivates us, that would be the strength that we go out into our life with. 
Habakkuk's vision for the Jewish nation in Judah was too small. Um, God was going to bring wholesale change. He was going to bring his eternal kingdom. It wasn't just about Judah. It was about something much more. In the same way, the crowd's vision on Palm Sunday was, for Jesus was way too small. Jesus had much more planned than overturning Roman rule. Likewise, the disciples, their vision for Jesus, that was too small. Jesus had much more planned for the disciples than just hanging out with them, doing miracles, and just giving them some awesome teaching. Likewise, our vision sometimes for Jesus in our lives can be too small. Jesus has much more planned for us than an easy, domesticated life, than a convenient experience. Jesus comes to bring a kingdom. He comes to make an end of all sin, to bring peace in our hearts so that we might live with unspeakable joy. He brings eternal life that we might know God. Jesus brings in an everlasting righteousness. He brings an end of evil so that we might experience God's presence, that we would do the works that Jesus has done and greater and that Jesus would make a way for the Holy Spirit so that God himself could live inside of us. That's so much better than just overturning Roman rule. Um, And C.S. Lewis puts it succinctly when he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Um, I know it's been short, but can we have the band back on stage? Is that possible? Some of them might not be in the room. What we can look at in these moments is we can look at Paul's example. Um, Paul has always been an amazing example for us of what it means to live a Christian life of freedom. Um, Paul was was as free as they come. So he was going about preaching, um, and he was unhindered in the way that he would preach. Um, And the authorities were threatened by this and intimidated by this. And they say, okay, Fine, we're going to lock you away. Um, Paul's response, okay, I'll just convert your prison guards, and he does. The authorities' response is, right, we'll, we'll just kill you then. Paul says, fine, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Okay, we'll just release you. Fine, I'll carry on preaching. Paul is the most free man that has ever lived, and he really lives the words that he says. He lives with integrity. When he says in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So all of our expectations of Jesus, all of the, the, the warm, cuddly things that we want from life, Jesus wants to bring us into a place of freedom where we can look at those things and say they are nothing compared to knowing Christ. So we might come to church on a Sunday morning having had the worst week, the worst weekend, or even the worst Sunday morning. Um, And we may turn up with all these trials and difficulties and expectations and problems in our hearts weighing heavily on them. But I think what God wants to show us and he's been showing us through our worship this morning, is that these difficult situations are not meaningless. God doesn't just accidentally allow us to go through these situations um, because he's not in control of them. He is using them. 
um, he's using them to build Christ in you. He's using them to change you from the inside out. Um, so let's carry on worshiping God. Um, if there's something that's in your heart that you want prayer for, I'll be at the front. I'd love to pray with you about those things. Um, yeah, let's, let's, just, let's just pray and then worship. Heavenly Father, um, we see from your word that you do so much more than we can imagine. Um, and that you allow us to go through these things because you want us to see you. You know that when we take our trust off of things in our lives that we, we hold up to make us happy and we put our trust in you, Lord Jesus, we see real happiness, we see real joy. And we know that in all things, you are working for the good of those that are called according to your purpose. So I pray, Lord God, this morning that you help us to no longer resist your will for our lives in any areas where we're resisting what you're trying to do, any hardship, any pressure. Lord, help us to see those as instruments of your grace in our lives. Help us to submit to your will. Help us to see those things as opportunities to, to bring worship to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, turn us into people um, who count everything as loss for the sake of knowing you. Help us to be people who recognize that you are building a palace in us and you want to come and live in it. Help us to become a people that recognize that you have a very different idea of what triumph means in our lives. Lord, as we come to worship you now, Lord, I pray you build faith in us. Your word says that the righteous shall live by faith. So when we go through all these turbulent times in our life, Lord, you're, you're testing us to see if we have faith in you. And it's the righteous that live by faith. It's the saved people that live by faith. It's those that know Jesus that live by faith. Lord, build faith in us today, I pray. Amen.